0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number nine, the book of Matthew, chapter four. As we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we discover so many important details buried in the text, and those details that are present in Christian tradition, just as importantly, in ancient. Jewish tradition, we are regularly going to step back and we're going to review what we've studied from a more panoramic vantage point. Therefore, before we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 today, let's just briefly sum up the first three chapters. Matthew opens with an extensive but purposeful genealogy of Yeshua. Now, because Matthew is a well-educated Jewish believer, because he is well-versed in Jewish tradition as well as in the Hebrew Bible, all that we uncover from here forward will have a decidedly Jewish flavor and worldview. The genealogy he presents, then, is given in a particularly Hebrew style. It is given in descending order with the oldest ancestor named first. Now, in this case, the oldest ancestor is Abraham. Why did Matthew start with Abraham? Because Abraham is the father of the Hebrews and Matthew's intent is to prove Yeshua's fundamental Hebrew connection. The next point to recognize is that King David is central to Christ's genealogy in order to prove his right to royal inheritance, but also to prove his credentials as the Messiah. David's name consists of three Hebrew consonants. They have a total gematria value of 14. So, the genealogy is given to us in three sets of 14 names each, with David's name as the 14th name listed in the first set. The list is not complete and exhaustive. Some generations are skipped, not because Matthew didn't know they existed or who those people were, but because he needed to have his list add up to 42. Why 42? 3 times 14 equals 42. This matches with Daniel's extensive use of the number 42, in his Book of Prophecy that was highly popular at this time. Now, Interestingly, four women are included in this genealogy. It's not usual to include women. But even more stunning is that the four women mentioned all began their lives as Gentiles. In this way, Matthew is showing that while Jesus is thoroughly Jewish, a connection to Gentiles exists in his underlying biology, so it can't be overlooked. Now, about halfway through the first chapter, Matthew tells the story of Yeshua's birth circumstances, beginning with the the odd, if not shameful, situation of his biological mother not having a completed marriage with his non-biological father. In a typical Jewish courting and marriage custom, Joseph is betrothed to Mary. However, soon thereafter, Mary turns up pregnant, and the scandal cannot be contained because Joseph knows it is not his child. Now, Biblically, betrothal is closer to marriage than it is to engagement, as we think of it today. A marriage contract between the husband and the woman's father is executed at the time of betrothal. As of that moment, the man is called husband, the woman is called wife, still the woman remains with her father's household for a time, usually around a year. And at the end of this time, the woman moves out of her father's home into her husband's home where consummation occurs. The marriage is only then fully completed. Mary being pregnant while still living with her father brings a loss of honor to all parties. And by the law of Moses, it's a crime. It's a crime that demands the death penalty to the girl. Joseph doesn't want that for Mary. So he decides to divorce her quietly. But an angel comes in a dream and tells him not to do that. Rather, he's to continue on with the marriage process. In faith and trust in God, he obeys. Joseph is told that Mary was not pregnant by normal human means, but rather the male seed is supplied by the Holy Spirit. The son that will be produced is to be named Yeshua, which means Jehovah saves. Now we're also to notice that Joshua did not have sexual relations with Mary, meaning he did not consummate the marriage until after the child was born. So you see, by every Jewish standard, Christ was born to a mother whose marriage was incomplete. Now, Chapter 2 begins by explaining that Mary's child was born in the small town of Bethlehem of Judea during a historical time when Herod the Great ruled. Now unfolds the story of some non-specified number of pagan magi, astrologers, coming to Judea. They say that they know that a new king of Judea has been born, and this is because they have seen the portent of it in the sky. So they arrive in Jerusalem and they begin asking around where this new king is because in their minds where else would a Jewish king be located other than the capital city of Jerusalem The news of these magi reaches Herod he's alarmed by it and he calls together his advisory council and he asks them so where would the Messiah be born. They respond in Bethlehem. Herod immediately summons the Magi and he sends them to Bethlehem and tells them report back to him exactly who this child is. Now notice, (laughs) the pagan Magi are the first to be aware of Christ's birth, even before the Jewish people were aware. Also, notice they came to Judea looking for a king. They did not come looking for a Messiah or a God. The Magi's purpose for their visit was purely political. Purely political. Herod's concern makes the leap from the political to the religious. He knows enough of the ancient prophecies and the hopes of His people for a deliverer, to realize that perhaps this child that the Magi are searching for could be that foretold Messiah. And if true, then this represents a real problem for Him hanging on to His throne. The Magi leave for Bethlehem. It's only a short 3-4 or hour walk on a well-traveled trail from Jerusalem. The text says that a star led them to Bethlehem and to the house where the child was located. Now We spent some time investigating just what it was that these pagan astrologers saw that convinced them to make this long journey to find this new king. In the end we discovered that Matthew had researched enough to use astrological language in his report about the Magi, such that it seems that these seers had observed the placement of a conjunction of three planets into the zodiac sign of Aries. Ares was believed by them to represent the region of Judea. The conjunction of planets was, for these astrologers, An unmistakable omen that a new king had been born there. They wanted to go and pay homage to this new king, realizing, of course, that this new king was was only a baby. But such was the politics of that day that it usually paid off to make a connection with a future king as soon as possible. Well, the Magi knew before they left their homes. That they were traveling to Judea. They weren't wondering about this. And just as obviously to the seat of government of Judea if they were gonna find this new king. That's, of course, Jerusalem. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, because they shunned astrology, had no hint of the event that the Magi came for, and they were confused and startled when these Magi began began inquiring around. About this, about this new king. However, in the fields of Bethlehem, the glory of God burst upon some humble Jewish shepherds, producing this blinding light, and an angel vocally announced the birth of their deliverer, the long promised Messiah. Now, the shepherds went to the house in the village where the Messiah lay in a feeding trough, a manger. Because THAT was the sign that the angel gave to them as the means to find and positively identify Him. The year of our Lord's advent was likely 6 BC by our modern calendars, since Herod the Great died a couple of years later in 4 BC, and the year of Herod's death, by the way, is well attested. So the Magi also locate the child, they believe him to be this new king that their astrological portent had revealed, they honor him appropriately with very expensive gifts, and then they leave for home without reporting back to Herod. Herod soon realized they weren't coming back to him with the information he wanted, and so in a homicidal rage, taking no chances, he ordered all male children in and around Bethlehem to be murdered, so that whichever of these children this possible Messiah might be, he wasn't going to survive. Before the slaughter began, an angel came to Joseph in a dream. And he told him to flee with his family at once to Egypt and there to await word for this same angel for when the family could return to the Holy Land. They were in Egypt for probably around a year before the same angel did return. He returned with the good news that Herod was dead, so the danger had passed. Even so, the succeeding king, one of Herod's sons, was about as bad as his father ruling over Judea, so Joseph decided it would be a safer choice to go to the Galilee and live in Nazareth, a small and remote country village. Well, as we enter chapter 3, the subject turned to John the Baptist, therefore several years passed from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3, perhaps as many as 30 years. John was a desert dweller, apparently dressed much like the prophets of old, wearing a camel's hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. There is little doubt in my mind, anyway, that he thought of himself as a successor to Elijah. And the Jewish people believed he might be the return of that ancient prophet. John's message to the Jews was twofold. First, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Second, people should prepare for it by turning from their sins to God. He is called John the Baptist because those who heeded his message also came to him to be ritually immersed in the Jordan River. Now, although the Gospel accounts don't entirely agree on the exact purpose of John's baptism. It seems to me that it was mostly about a public declaration of repentance, and the immersion was a symbol of cleansing from the old and putting on the new. Now, During this era, due to the ruthless and painful occupation of the Romans, the Jews generally believed they were living in the end times. So when a prophet comes along, who declares that the kingdom of God's about to appear? Something that was thought to accompany the end of days? Many pay attention. They pay attention, if for no other reason than out of fear and self preservation. Apparently, the number of people flocking to John was substantial enough to alarm the religious leadership of both the temple and the synagogue. Holy men who gathered enough disciples could present a challenge to their authority, or worse upset Rome. And so the Pharisee and the Sadducee leadership came to John to investigate. John knew they didn't come to him sincerely, so he didn't welcome them, in fact he chided them saying they were snakes and that their heritage of Abraham as their ancestral father was in no way sufficient to protect them from God's wrath. John went on to explain his own purpose as the one who was to prepare the way for the emergence of a great man, a man who was far greater than himself. And when this great man comes, one of the things he will do is to identify the righteous from the unrighteous and separate them, the way a winnowing fork separates the wheat from the chaff. We hear not one word about Yeshua's youth, not a word. It is now that Yeshua as an adult enters the picture, as He comes from Galilee to John in Judea to be immersed. Now, John balks at such a notion, feeling that he's not worthy to do so. Yeshua insists. And upon immersion, the Holy Spirit, in some visible, detectable form, descends upon him in dove like fashion. A voice booms from heaven that can be none other than the Father. He says that this is his son, and he is well pleased with him. What comes next? Well, that's the subject of Matthew chapter 4. So open your Bibles to that chapter Matthew chapter 4. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1226. 1226. Matthew chapter 4 Then the Spirit led Yeshua up into the wilderness to be tempted by the adversary. After Yeshua had fasted forty days and nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, order these stones to become bread. But he answered, The Tanakh says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of Adonai. Then the adversary took him to the holy city, set him up on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he says, "Jump." For the Tanakh says, "He will order his angels to be responsible for you. They will support you with their hands, so that you will not hurt your feet on the stones." Yeshua reported him, but it also says, "Do not put deny your God to the test." Once more, the adversary took him up to the summit of a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And he said to him, All of this I will give you, if you will bow down and worship me. Away with you, Satan, Yeshua told him. For the Tanakh says, Worship Adonai your God, serve only him. Then the adversary let him alone, and the angels came and took care of him. Now, when Yeshua heard that Yochnan, uh, John, John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he returned to the Galilee. But he left Natseret, Nazareth, came to Kfar Nahum, uh, Caperna- uh, Capernaum, a lake shore town near the boundary between Zebulun and Naphtali. This happened in order to fulfill what Yeshua, Isaiah, the prophet had said, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, toward the lake, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the uh, Goyim, Galilee of the Gentiles or nations, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those living in the region, in the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time on, Yeshua began proclaiming, Turn from your sins to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And as Yeshua walked by Lake Canaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers who were fishermen, Shimon, known as Kepha, Simon, known as Peter, and his brother Andrew, throwing their net into the lake. And Yeshua said to them, Come after me, I'll make you fishers for men. And at once they left their nets and went with him. And going on from there, he saw their two brothers, two other brothers, Yaakov ben Zabdi and Yochanan, his brother. Your Bibles will probably say James and John. In the boat with their father Zafdi, repairing their nets, and he called them. And at once they left the boat and their father, and they went with Yeshua. Yeshua went all over the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing people from every kind of disease and sickness. Word of him spread throughout Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill, suffering from various diseases and pains, those held in the power of demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Huge crowds followed him from the Galilee, from the ten towns, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judah, and even ever across the Jordan. <clears throat> Now the theme for chapter 4 is really the beginning of Yeshua's ministry. Uh, Interestingly, the first thing that Matthew deals with is this string of three temptations that Jesus faced, all orchestrated by Satan. It is curious that we are told that it was the Spirit, the Spirit, that led Yeshua into the wilderness, the Judean desert that John the Baptized called home. Now the Spirit has to be referring to the Holy Spirit, so (laughs) it's God that, that, that guided Christ into the desert to have an encounter with the devil. Now, The term the devil comes from the Greek word that's used here, which is Diabolos. And it is an attempted translation of the Hebrew term Satan, which also means adversary. So there's several terms. For the arch enemy of God, like devil, Satan, evil one, adversary, others, and they're all equal and, and referring to the same evil spiritual being. Now, sometimes we can forget that Satan, like all other beings or objects, was created by the only Creator that exists, the God of Israel. Now, Naturally, even though he wants to be, Satan is not equal to his Creator. The Bible makes it clear that Satan is the source of all evil, all degradation, the underlying cause of all sin. I want to state without hesitation that those who say There is no God, and that as human beings they are the superior beings of this planet, if not the universe. They are operating in the image of the adversary. Those who in English are called atheists, these are the most dangerous creatures on this planet because they embody the very essence of the devil. Those who oppose the Creator see themselves as equal to Him and desire to take His place. We are not going to find a great deal of information in the Bible about the realm of the devil, nor much about the realm of God. This is because the writers of the Bible didn't know much about those two realms and because they assumed that their readers, at the minimum, accepted the idea that there exists two opposing spiritual regimes. Those beings that are loyal and obedient to God, the Creator, who represents light and perfection, and those beings that are loyal and obedient to Satan, God's adversary, who represents darkness and evil. So there's no need to explain it. Now, please notice that of the three temptations that the devil offers Yeshua, Yeshua rebukes them all by quoting scripture. And the scripture he quotes from is the Torah. Specifically, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and 8. Now, one of the reasons these particular passages are appropriate is because of something that we discussed in an earlier lesson. Jesus is being depicted as a kind of second Moses. And thus, Jesus is echoing Israel's experience in the wilderness, the Exodus, as Davies and Allison so eloquently put it having passed through the waters of a new exodus at his baptism, he enters the desert to suffer a time of testing, his 40 days of fasting being analogous to Israel's 40 years of wandering. And like Israel, Jesus is tested by hunger. And like Israel, Jesus is tempted to idolatry. In Deuteronomy 8, we read, this that was spoken to Israel as they navigated the trials of the wilderness, and they were about to emerge into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3, Moses is talking. He says, you're to remember everything of the way in which and I led you these 40 years in the desert, humbling, testing you, in order to know what was in your heart whether you would obey His commandments or not. He humbled you, allowing you to become hungry. Then He fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known. This was to make you understand that a person does not live on food alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of Adonai. God led the fleeing Israelites through the desert. He did so intentionally in a way to achieve a specific purpose. That purpose was to teach them through testing, through humbling, that what was hidden in the deepest recesses of their hearts would pour out in response to their circumstances. One of those humbling experiences that they faced was that they became hungry. And God's purpose for them, and during this, was to teach them that God's people don't live on food alone, but rather on what pours forth from His mouth. That is, His word, His truth, His laws, His commands. Now, Yeshua, as a sort of second Moses, he was going to now face similar trials. Indeed, as verse 2 says, out in the desert, Yeshua went without food for forty days and nights, and it says, of course, he became hungry. Now that's a rather significant understatement. For the Jews, you see, the desert was not just a dangerous place, it was also a very scary place. Even in the God-commanded observances of Yom Kippur, one of the rituals involved is the scapegoat. And one of the goats, you see, the way it worked is that there were two. One of the goats was killed, the other one was set free to wander in the desert and face evil. Leviticus 16, 8 through 10. Then Aaron is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Adonai, the other for Azazel. Aaron is to present the goat whose lot fell to Adonai and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat whose lot fell to Azazel, he's to be pre- presented alive to Adonai to be used for making atonement over it. By sending it into the desert for Azazel. There's always been a mystery associated with this Azazel. However, the general consensus within Judaism, and I think it's correct, is that Azazel was a powerful demon whose earthly realm was the Judean desert. Notice in Leviticus how of the two goats, one goes to God, the author of good, the other goes to a demon, the author of evil. And sure enough, out in the lonely desert the starving Jesus, the one designated to become our sin offering, encounters the evil one, and what does the devil do? He tempts Yeshua. I want to inject here that what the devil did towards Yeshua He does to us all, all of us, including believers. At our weakest, at our most unexpected moments, He tempts us to go against God. Yeshua gave us a formula for resisting the evil one. Satan knew of course exactly who Yeshua is, what God's purpose is for him, and yet it didn't deter him whatsoever from attempting to pervert Yeshua's destiny and His mission. well, Yeshua was beyond famished after 40 days and nights of not eating. His body was literally deteriorating. It's interesting that Matthew says the fasting lasted for 40 days AND 40 nights, not just 40 days, but because adding in the and nights that's not usual when speaking of periods of time in the Bible. Not usual at all. Not surprisingly, there were a couple of famous Bible characters who came before Yeshua that spoke of periods of time in that same way. Moses said in Deuteronomy nine, I had gone up the mountain to receive the stone tablets, the tablets on which was written the covenant Adonai had made with you. I stayed on the mountain forty days and nights without eating food or drinking water. So here we again see this connection between Moses and Christ and the idea that Christ is reliving the experience of Israel and the Exodus. But even more, there is another important connection that is being made, Jonah. Jonah 2.1 Adonai prepared a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. From the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed to Adonai as God. Now, everyone in ancient times perfectly understood that a day meant one entire sun and moon appearance, daytime, nighttime, in sequence, a day. So, the addition of the phrase And nights, well, that's not usual. It's not a usual Hebrew expression. It's rare. So, when something is rare in the Bible, pay attention. Later in his ministry, Christ will make use of this rare phrase and its prophetic connections. Listen to what he says later on in Matthew chapter 12, in verses 38 to 40. At this, some of the Torah teachers said, Rabbi, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He replied, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign? No. None will be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the depths of the earth. It is the addition of the phrase and nights that is the connecting tissue that pulls all of this together. Now, although I have never experienced hunger to the level that Jesus was experiencing it, I'm told it's actually painful. The devil, however, has an easy solution for him. He tells Yeshua that if, if, He's really the Son of God. Then just turn these stones that are laying all around him into bread. Easy enough. The devil, of course, is trying to sow self-doubt into Jesus. If, oh what a big word, if is. It is a word meant to describe uncertainty. You know, have we not all heard deep within our minds, if you're really saved, you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have had that bad thought. If you really love Jesus, He'd enable you to live a perfect life. Do everything God wants you to do. At the same time, this temptation of if happens very early in Christ's ministry. And there is ample biblical evidence that he indeed is still kind of struggling with exactly who he is, where he fits with his father's plan, just how to justify or perhaps balance his humanness with his divineness. And I expect that most of us will, similar to Yeshua, struggle our entire lives. To understand and balance our new godly nature with our old corrupted human nature it's to be expected, yet it is also fertile ground for the adversary to strike at us at any moment. What do we do? We follow our Savior's example. Yeshua responded to this attack by quoting the Bible. And as we discussed earlier in the beginning of today's lesson, it was from the Torah that Yeshua spoke to rebuke the devil. He says from Deuteronomy 8:3, a person does not live on food alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of Adonai. Now, this verse was, of course, spoken 1400 years earlier by Moses. Now, the circumstances were even similar. Listen to this entire passage of Deuteronomy 8:3. He humbled you, allowing you to become hungry, and then fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known to make you understand. A person does not live on food alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of Adonai. God provided starving Israel with manna, but they grumbled, and they complained about it endlessly. They were thankful only for a moment. Would Christ, the Son of God, now remember, God also called Israel a Son of God, would he behave as Israel did out in the wilderness? Or would he be faithful? As the second Moses, he quotes Moses and he passes the test. So far, Yeshua is indeed the ideal Israel and not that unfaithful one. Next, in verse 5, the adversary takes Yeshua to Jerusalem in the Temple. Note that it was God who took Yeshua into the desert for testing, just as God took the Israelite refugees into the desert for testing. But this time it is the devil that takes Yeshua to the holy city of Jerusalem for testing. He takes him to the pinnacle of the Temple and once again tries to sow seeds of doubt. He says, IF you are really the Son of God, then jump! Will Yeshua have the faith to do the most fearful thing one can imagine? Will he jump? Will he trust his Father to somehow miraculously catch him, saving his life? Wouldn't that be the result IF he was actually the Son of God? You know, Satan goes so far as to quote scripture to Jesus in order to convince him to take that leap. Instead of trying to prove himself or prove God by throwing himself off of this high place, he quotes Scripture to the devil in response to the devil using Psalm 91 to make his point. There we read in Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, For he will order his angels to care for you, to guard you wherever you go. They'll carry you in their hands so that you won't even trip on a stone. This is legitimate scripture Satan is using. Even the context for it, which is about God caring for His own, seems correct. Yeshua's response is more than appropriate. It's a caution to His disciples. It's a caution to all of us who believe. Many of us are very good at remembering scripture passages. Sometimes when we encounter a difficult or maybe a stressful situation or maybe a tough decision we can find ourselves hearing one of those biblical passages in our minds telling us to do something challenging even frightening but then we have to remember a principle that Jesus teaches us right here Deuteronomy 6:16 Do not put Adonai your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. I want to give you a quick Hebrew lesson. While often in English translations we see the idea of testing or tempting used twice in this verse in Matthew, in fact that is an illusion. Because it's actually used three times, the Hebrew actually makes a play on words. In the first use of the word "test" or "tempting," the original Hebrew is nasa. The second time we see "test" or "tempted," in this verse, the original Hebrew is the same, nasa. Remember, this is all coming from a passage out of Deuteronomy that's being quoted. So was Hebrew. But the third use is Masa, not Nasa. And it mostly means a place of tempting. In fact, Nasa with an N in this context is not best translated as tempt or test as it is in many translations. Rather, Nasa is meant in a judicial sense. Like putting someone on trial. So what this passage in Deuteronomy is meaning is to not put God on trial as Israel tried to put God on trial at the place of tempting. God took Israel to a place to tempt them, thus putting their faith on trial. But Israel, you see, well, they tried to turn it around and put God on trial. We are never to put God on trial. We're never to judge Him. And jumping off of a tall building trying to prove to someone, even perhaps to yourself, that you have faith in God, because God is certainly able to catch you if He wants to, is to put God on trial. And that's never right. I mean, I can't tell you (laughs) how many emails I get from sincere persons who are assured in their minds, backed up for that scripture verse, that they are to do something that seems to me abundantly foolish, but they think they should do it for God. They are among the hardest to persuade that what is really happening is that either the devil or, more likely, their own evil inclination is putting them in a losing situation. Which when it fails, guess what they are going to do? They are going to blame God. Or at least they are going to lose some substantial measure of faith and trust in Him. It is that they are certain, they are so certain, that God's will for them is to do something that appropriate Scripture teaching in context tells them to do otherwise. And almost always it's because they so badly want to do what their own will wants to do. So they're blind to the error of it. Yeshua rebukes this test of Satan. I kind of think he did want to jump off. Because he would have been caught. But he didn't. So Yeshua rebukes rebukes that test of Satan by recalling the Masa, that's with an M, Masa incident during Israel's exodus from Egypt. Once again, he provides connection between himself and Moses. In verse eight, again, the devil leads Yeshua to a high place, but this time it's even higher than that pinnacle on the temple. It's to a mountaintop. And it's in order to gain this wide vantage point so that Satan can dramatically make his offer. Notice how we go from a low place, the desert, to a high place, the pinnacle on the temple, to the highest place, a mountaintop. And in lockstep with the ascending geography is the ascending temptations. Now, the devil offers Christ the world that lays out before him. He makes it clear he has the ability to give Messiah all the world's kingdoms for him to rule over. The price? Bow down and worship him. Now, the point's not hard to see. It is Satan's, Satan's attempt to replace God. I don't know. Whether Yeshua at this point in time also knows that he is God's agent to rule the world or not, I just don't know. Nevertheless, the world belongs to God because he's the creator of it. It is his, it's his alone to rule over or to assign the rule to another. Interestingly, the Devil's offer of Christ worshipping Him in exchange for world rule uses the same word in Greek that the Magi used when worshipping Yeshua, proskuneo. proskuneo. It is better translated as homage. That is, just as the Magi paid homage in the political sense to the Christ child who the Magi saw as a king, so is the devil telling Yeshua to pay homage in the political sense and much less so in the religious sense because the devil sees himself as the ruler, the king, the prince of this world. Satan is proposing a role reversal since we know from other biblical passages that God has designated Yeshua to be the ruler of the world, with Satan bowing down to Him. Yeshua again rebukes the evil one with Scripture, again from the Torah, Deuteronomy 6.13. You're to fear Adonai, your God, serve Him and swear by His name the next words of this Gospel of Matthew are "Then the adversary left him alone. At that moment, the devil's hopes were crushed. The testing was over. There was nothing left to test. He had failed to shake the faith of our Messiah, the Son of God. We'll continue chapter four next week.